Welcome to Book Sandwiched In. I'm Maggie Carini with the Friends of the Library. Today we welcome Dr. Victor Eric Ray, an assistant professor with UT Department of Sociology, for a discussion of Stamped from the Beginning, A Definitive History of Racist Ideas in America by Ibram X. Kendi. His work focuses on race, gender, and stratification and has been funded by the Ford Foundation, the American Sociological Association, and the National Science Foundation. Thank you all for coming out. I want to take a minute before I get started talking about the book to uh, thank the organizers, Mary Palm Claiborne, Emily Ellis, and Nicole Barajas for arranging this talk. When I originally agreed to do this talk and was asked to do this talk months ago, I didn't realize how potentially relevant to current events <laughs> um, some of what's contained in this book would be. So as Kendi shows throughout the book, uh, racist ideas are sort of a constant throughout US history, but they ebb and flow with political events. Right? I chose this book to talk about because one, it just recently won the National Book Award. But two, as a specialist on race and racism in the US, it's rare that a book comes along with the breadth and scope of this undertaking that Dr. Kendi uh, did, and um, a book that is, advances claims that are very potentially provocative. So Dr. Kendi organizes this book around historical figures who he claims have advanced racism, challenged racism, or both. One of the major themes that comes through in this book is that racist ideas are deeply ingrained and have shaped much of American history. The title of the book comes from a Jefferson Davis quote, where Jefferson Davis, who I'm sure people know as the future president of the Confederacy, said that the racial hierarchy is natural. The United States, he claimed, was a nation founded by and for white men, and that racial inequality was, quote, stamped from the beginning in our country. So according to this view, social policy is incapable of intervening in what he considered natural racial difference. Right? Kendi points out that this belief in natural racial inequality that Davis puts forward is almost invariably seen as racist today, um, although this may be changing. But Kendi's definition of what constitutes a racist idea goes beyond what we typically consider racist. And I think it's an interesting one and one that would have a lot of lay people might have an issue with. Not because I necessarily think what Dr. Kendi is saying here is incorrect, but because what he describes as racist encompasses a lot of ideas that we typically classify as non-racist. So to make this point, Dr. Kendi divides the historical figures in the book into three groups that he calls segregationists, anti-racists, and assimilationists. Segregationists are those who, like Davis, believed that all the problems that people of color face higher rates of poverty, unemployment, higher rates of incarceration, lower rates of marriage, or even currently to this day lower life expectancies are the result of inborn and mostly unchanging biological differences. So for instance, historically a segregationist would blame slavery on the supposed inherent inferiority of Africans, not on conquest, colonization, or economic expansion's need for more labor. A more current example would be something like blaming residential segregation not on sort of government-sponsored um, federal segregation that's well-documented, but rather on something like the work ethic of people of color. 
anti-racist for Kendi, or he, he makes uh, this group out to be sort of the heroes of the book, place the blame for racial inequality on discrimination. And this is pretty straightforward. Opposing races, anti-racists see all group-based differences in racial inequality as a result of differential treatment. Unequal access to resources, jobs, banking, lawyers, healthcare, enforced either through state sanction or state non-intervention are the historical roots of current racial inequalities. For this group, there is nothing biological or cultural on the part of people of color that can explain racial inequality. And the third group, according to Kendi, is what he calls assimilationists. Now this group combines ideas from both the segregationists and the anti-racists. So from the anti-racists, assimilationists take the idea that racial inequality stems from discrimination, and from the segregationists, they take the idea that some of the blame for racial inequality results from either the culture, behavior, or nature of non-whites. This leads Kendi to define racist ideas as any concept that regards one racial group as inferior or superior to another racial group in any way. And ultimately, this also leads to his claim that assimilationist ideas are at their root racist because they rely on notions of cultural or biological difference to explain inequality. The claim that people of color should adopt to what people think of as allegedly superior norms and values of white American culture, or that black men would face less scrutiny from police if they just pulled up their pants, are, according to Kendi, victim-blaming narratives. So although Kendi creates this topology to help arrange his ideas, as a historian, I think he's really careful and attentive to the fact that he's talking about complex people who often change dramatically over their lifetimes. So he creates this topology, but really none of the figures that he then goes on to examine fit neatly in it throughout the thrust of the book. Has anyone actually had a chance to read the book or look at it, by the way? Oh, okay, you've got to take my word for it. <laughs> <All right. laughs> so once he establishes his position about what constitutes a racist idea, Kendi then traces the evolution and application of these ideas through the lives of five main historical figures who he claims were some of the most important racial theorists of their lifetimes. So he starts with the Puritan preacher and what he calls slavery apologist Cotton Mather, who believed that enslaved Africans would become white upon conversion to Christianity. In their souls, he says in their souls, right? Thomas Jefferson, who claimed to be anti-slavery while actually enslaving his own children. William Lloyd Garrison, the abolitionist who tirelessly preached on the evils of slavery yet maintained a belief in black intellectual inferiority. W.E.B. Du Bois, who was the first African-American to graduate with a PhD from Harvard and whose thinking evolved over the course of his lifetime from assimilationist to what Kendi later describes as staunchly anti-racist. And finally, he discusses Angela Davis, a political philosopher, former communist, and anti-racist activist who has been combating racism for what Kendi says are four decades. So I want to emphasize two small but important points before we move on to discuss the lives of the people I've just laid out. Kendi says that hate and ignorance have not driven the history of racist ideas in America. Racist policies have driven the history of racist ideas in America. And I think this is a really important point, and it inverts how we typically think about racism in the US. 
people can let me know if this is what they were taught. So we're taught that stereotypes, which are faulty ideas about a group, lead to prejudice, which are unfair or biased beliefs about that group, which then leads to discrimination, which is unfair treatment of a group, right? Kendi is actually reversing this sequence by saying that unfair treatment, things like colonization, slavery, Jim Crow policies, and labor exploitation had to be justified and that the justification is what led racist ideas to arise. This means that racist ideas don't exist in a vacuum, but are rather always tied to policies and practices, right? And these social practices, according to Kendi, provide some groups with power and resources, making the policies hard to dislodge once they're in place, because people don't want to give up those power and resources. So the idea that racism is always tied to social practices, and by this I mean it doesn't just exist in people's heads, leads to a second one. And this is the narrative we're usually told about US racial history as one of slow, steady progress towards a post-racial utopia. So we can think here of the sanitized history of the civil rights movement, which is usually taught as starting with Rosa Parks' refusal to move, prompting Dr. King to lead a few peaceful marches, he then had a dream uh, and ultimately ended racism. Kendi rejects this narrative of progress by reframing the history. He says, yes, there has been racial progress. For instance, the desegregation of schools, anti-discrimination laws in housing and hiring, and the protection of voting rights. And he's happy about this progress. He's like, this is a good thing. But he contextualized this racial progress by saying that there has also been what he calls racist progress. So by this, he means that not only have the advancements for people of color been met with resistance at nearly every step, but um, brief aside, there's a, another recent book that won, I think, the National Crit Critics Book Circle Award, if you are interested in this topic, called White Rage by a professor of African American Studies at Emory University um, that talks about this process of back and forth of US racial history uh, very lucidly. But, so Kendi says that racist ideas and practices have found ways to adapt to social changes. So for instance, the recent spate of voter suppression laws aimed at making it more difficult for people of color to vote, or even the rise of companies like Airbnb. Airbnb's home rental policies are not subject to the Fair Housing Act. So renters can legally discriminate because the Fair Housing Act, portions of it, only applied to hotels over a certain size and not private residents. So Kendi urges us to think of racial progress and racial backlashes more complexly than the typical narratives we get. So once Kendi establishes this, he moves on to a really comprehensive discussion of the history of racist ideas stretching back to antiquity. I'm not going to go into a lot of the pre-Enlightenment ideas of difference, but I will say that prior to the Enlightenment, there were ideas about cultural differences, and some scholars even argue ethnic group differences, but the modern idea of race did not exist. Right? And we can talk more about that in the Q&A. This is a key point for Kendi's claim that race and racism arose as justifications for inequality, right? that they weren't the initial causes of current types of inequality. Kendi starts to illustrate this point that racist ideas arose to justify inequality by focusing on Cotton Mather, who was a Puritan preacher and also a graduate of Harvard. Mather argued that those who don't accept their racial place were like devils who couldn't accept subordination to God. 
Kenji claims that by 1706, Mather was America's foremost minister and intellectual when he published a pamphlet called The Negro Christianized. For Mather's time, this pamphlet was actually more assimilationist than segregationist because he claimed that slaves were people with souls who could be baptized. But Mather hoped that this gesture towards egalitarianism would actually help to provide him and others with more docile servants. And he maintained that slavery was compatible with Christianity. Kendi claimed that Mather's influence had many preaching what he called a racist Christianity for submission, not an anti-racist Christianity for liberation. Thus, he calls Mather America's first great assimilationist because he preached that African people could become, as I said earlier, white in their souls. So following Mather, Kendi turns his attention to Thomas Jefferson. As a representative of the Enlightenment, Jefferson believed in the possibility of universal human progress, as long as that progress was in some way connected to white racial superiority. So other scholars have long argued that Modern Enlightenment ideas about race were partially mapped onto pre-existing distinctions between Christians and heathens. Increasing trade interaction between European capitals in Africa and the Americas created economic inequalities between core and peripheral countries. Kendi maintains that these economic disparities caused by conquest and unequal exchange were rationalized as the expected result of racial difference and in many cases therefore part of God's will. Also during this time period, the Enlightenment obsession with categorization and measurement led to the development of the first racial taxonomies with, of course, whites at the top of what was then called the great chain of being. Slavery and conquest were seen as natural and ordained as animal husbandry. So despite these justifications of slavery, the Enlightenment also produced some very profound anti-slavery ideas. This is the intellectual environment in which Jefferson was writing and making revolution. Jefferson's early work as a lawyer included a case in which he condemned slavery, arguing that all men are born free. Yet Kendi shows that Jefferson's writings and notes on the state of Virginia were, quote, a hodgepodge of pro and anti-slavery views that were not easily reconciled. Jefferson maintained that freeing slaves and not moving them out of the country once freed to, you know, he had a number of different places he said that they could be moved, would lead to, quote, the extermination of one or the other race. He thought freeing slaves and leaving them in America would fundamentally destabilize the country. Right? Um, but he also thought, at the same time, that slavery was an abomination and that abolition was eventually inevitable. Although Jefferson's thought is, to some degree, conflicted on the propriety of slavery, his actions on the matter are pretty clear. Jefferson uh, sexually assaulted his slave, Sally Hemings, despite the claim that racial amalgamation produced degeneration. And although some of their children died in childbirth, he freed those who made it to adulthood. He opposed the Haitian Revolution, saying, never was so deeply a tragedy presented to the feelings of man, despite the fact that the Haitian Revolution drew from the same wellspring of Enlightenment ideas as the American and French. And once the international slave trade was abolished, Jefferson profited off of breeding slaves on his plantation. He encouraged agitation for emancipation only in cases where no one would be offended, which seems 
somewhat impossible, um, and thought that once emancipation did occur, black people would need to be transported out of the country to preserve the purity of the nation. Finally, Jefferson enslaved over 600 people during his lifetime, and according to Kendi, never freed any of them except his own children. So Kendi then moves on to the abolitionists, and he focuses on William Lloyd Garrison, who at 12, in 1818, was indentured to a printer, uh, where he served for seven years. During this time, he was a pious Baptist and avid reader. Shortly after he ended his indenture in 1825, he began what became a 40-year quest of preaching abolition. The section on Garrison is one of my favorites in the book because Garrison was a firebrand and was pretty unflinching in both his writing. Uh, he founded the abolitionist paper The Liberator in 1831 and his public speaking, where he advocated unflinchingly for the immediate abolition of slavery. Garrison was unsurprisingly often threatened his life was often threatened, but he never allowed these threats to interfere with what he considered to be right. However, Kennedy creates some nuance by showing that despite this unflinching support for abolition, Garrison often invoked assimilationist ideas. Although he saw slavery as an unabashed evil, he also claims that racial progress would occur only when black people approached the whites in their habits. Kennedy's work showing these contradictions among people I think is a very important because it shows how people who disagree politically on principles uh, or even ideas about what's right can sometimes come together anyway to make historical changes. Garrison remained a steadfast abolitionist throughout the Civil War, often chastising Lincoln for not moving fast enough or other things that he considered to be half measures. Following the Civil War, Garrison remained committed to justice for black people, lamenting the abandonment of Reconstruction in the impending reinstatement of Jim Crow. W.E.B. Du Bois famously characterized this transition from Reconstruction to Jim Crow when he wrote, the slave went free, stood for a brief moment in the sun, then moved back again towards slavery. Du Bois' credentials were unsurpassed among social scientists of his day. He was the first black person to graduate from Harvard with a PhD. A little anecdote, when uh, someone told Du Bois that he should be proud, he was at Harvard, he said, I assure you the pleasure was theirs. Um, and he did his postgraduate work at the University of Berlin. These were the leading centers of social science at the time, conferring credentials that few white social scientists in the world could match. His Atlanta laboratory was the first proper school of sociology in the country, and the volume and quality of Du Bois's writing uh, is really kind of staggering. So he published multiple field-defining works, including Black Reconstruction in History, and the Philadelphia Negro in sociology, he published on average every 12 days of his life. It's just an incredible pace, especially before the internet when you can just... <laughs> so, Early in his career, Du Bois's education in and through white institutions introduced Du Bois to what Kendi considered, and actually even Du Bois himself considered, racist ideas. So early Du Bois was fully committed to the idea that only a select group of black people, which he called the Talented Tenth, would uplift his fellow black people and eventually prove to white people that equality was in principle possible. Du Bois also deeply believed that armed with the empirical facts about racial inequality, his research would provide whites with the information they needed, the facts, to change their minds about the causes and consequences of racial inequality. 
However, for Du Bois, this belief in sort of the, the power of fact was shattered following the lynching in 1899 of Sam Hose. And he wrote a letter and he left his office to submit this letter to the state and complain about the lynching. But as he was on his way to the mailbox, he heard uh, that Sam Hose's knuckles had been placed on display in a store window. So he gave up the letter. I, he didn't fully give up the idea, but he wrote, Two considerations thereafter broke upon my work and eventually disrupted it. First, one could not be a cool, calm, and detached scientist while Negroes were lynched, murdered, and starved. And secondly, there was no such definite demand for scientific work of the sort I was doing. So Du Bois realized that white supremacy as a system that supported extrajudicial murder was in, in some ways beyond reason. And so after this event, Although Du Bois remained committed to the power of education and facts, he also began to agitate. He became a founding member of the NAACP uh, because he realized, along with what Kendi is saying, is he felt that facts alone were not enough to intervene in what he considered, well, what were profound racial inequalities. So Kendi closes uh, these historical biographies with a chapter on Angela Davis, who is, in my reading, probably what Kendi considers the most consistent anti-racist in the book, and probably in some ways the most controversial figure he profiles. Davis was born in Birmingham, Alabama, and marks the 1963 white supremacist church bombing, which killed four little girls, as sort of a turning point in her consciousness. She studied and received a PhD under Herbert Marcusa, who was an leading intellectual of the New Left, and she became a prominent member of the Black Power Movement in the wake of Dr. King's assassination. But Davis rocketed to international notoriety as a political prisoner after she was charged with, quote, murdering, kidnapping, and conspiracy following Jonathan Jackson's attempts at releasing his brother George Jackson from prison. We can talk about that event in the uh, Q&A if people are interested. During Davis's trial, a massive social movement formed that eventually led to her acquittal. And Davis has remained, according to Kendi, a steadfast anti-racist organizer through her many books, political projects, and her call for the abolition of prisons. So that's the overview of the book. If you haven't read this book, I highly recommend it. I do think it is a, it's a provocative <laughs> book. And I think that you know, he says very clearly he's focusing on the history of ideas. So although he says these ideas are always applied to um, sort of social and material resources, uh, that's a thread that could sometimes be lost. And I also think it's interesting that Kendi himself says, uh, before I wrote this book, I actually believed a lot of the assimilationist ideas. And he says it was through the writing of the book that he came to see those ideas as deeply problematic. Personally, um, as a sociologist who studies this stuff, I think the weight of the evidence falls in the anti-racist camp, but I would also say, uh, and that, is, that camp is that uh, the vast majority of racial inequality can be explained through unfair treatment, either his residue of unfair treatment from history or current acts of discrimination. And I'll just, I'll just briefly say one of the reasons that I feel comfortable saying that is there's a really well-regarded type of study that we do a lot of in sociology that are called audit studies. And so what you do in these studies is you take people who are equally matched on every characteristic you can match, right? So they'll take a resume and they will simply change the name of the person on the resume. 
nothing else changes. So they'll have, uh, and they use names that are stereotypically associated with whites or stereotypically associated with African Americans or Latinos. So they'll have Brad or Jamal. They'll send that to 5,000 people and they will show pretty convincingly that uh, Brad gets 50% more calls back for a job than Jamal, even though nothing else at all changed on the resume. Uh, there's another one that I think is really, oh, so my discussion of Airbnb earlier, so they've done one of these studies on Airbnb. They show that African-Americans receive, I think it's 15 or 16% less are likely to be able to book a place to stay on Airbnb. Uh, the most compelling one, though, is a paper called The Mark of a Criminal Record, in which um, a woman sent equally matched black men and white men to jobs, uh, to go out and apply for jobs. Uh, and she found uh, that white men with a criminal record were more likely to be called back for an entry-level job than a black man who had never served any time. And that is a really profound finding. So some of us, in what I would say is my camp in sociology, attribute the vast majority of racial inequality to discrimination and use studies like that to sort of substantiate our case. There are, is also a large contingent who are assimilationists. Assimilation theory is still probably one of the most prominent theories of race in the discipline of sociology, and people who attribute racial inequality to culture are typically very well respected in the discipline. And uh, I will say that anecdotally, you know, I talked about the Airbnb study and I talked about the, um, the resume study. Anecdotally, there have been a number of, you know, reports on social media or in the news of black people with distinctive names changing their name and then getting a callback because once that racial cue is removed from the resume, people don't differentiate in the same way. So which is, a, again, a real clear tie to resources. I'm Sissy Ferguson from Blount County, and I have a 29-year-old son and a 32-year-old daughter. Neither of my children want children, specifically for the reason they don't want to contribute to what's going on in our society right now. They won't do that to a little person because their mom, I had to teach my children what I wasn't taught. I'm gonna tell you something that I know for sure. They're wide awake. And I talked to my daughter, she lives in Chattanooga. She's, oh my mercy, whew. We've discussed it and all she would like from white people, and I'm gonna say it, y'all, because I have a big old mouth, is that you acknowledge the fact that you have been treated superiorly, whether you wanted to or not. You didn't get to pick who you were, who you were born, but neither did I. And I think that's what they're going for, is that we can do this thing together, but you need to acknowledge, and if you don't speak up, it's not gonna help anything. You have to say when it's not right. You have to step up if you see something. You have to do that. I'm 64 years old. I try to be nice about it and tactful, but if you see something 
that is implementing or something that is going on, all we ask as people of love, because love is going to carry us. That's, that's a given. That's the only way we're going to get through this. You got to say something. So I, I know that's where my kids are. They'll make you say something. <laughs> They're not as nice as I am. Thank you. <laughs> just want to add that there's a book called Growing Up White, and uh, it's about a white woman, well-educated, raised in a well-to-do family near Boston, who realizes in her adult life exactly what you're saying, that she's had many advantages that are hidden. They're just part of the system. She goes to a good college. Uh, her parents and the college experience allow her to network with other people who are um, high up in banking or whatever, can offer her a good job, and life just rolls along merrily for her. And, and then she realizes that people of color do not have those same choices or those same benefits through no fault of their own. Even if they go to that school, they may not have the networking. Or if they apply for a job, as you say, they may have barriers that are unseen. She talks about some historical information in uh, the U.S., such as the uh, black GIs coming back from World War II not being able to take advantage of the GI Bill, getting an education or buying a house. Even though they should be able to, they're turned away because they're, they're black. And so I would recommend that as another source of information. There's another book along those lines by Ira Katz Nelson called uh, When Affirmative Action Was White. And it spends a lot of time on that, the GI Bill, housing discrimination, redlining, that type of practice. Do people know this book, Between the World and Me? Ta-Nehisi Coates, it, it's a great, great book. Ta-Nehisi Coates won the MacArthur Genius Award after he published this book. Uh, and what Ta-Nehisi Coates does in that book is he intentionally adopts the style of James Baldwin, who uh, is a very famous African-American uh, essayist and novelist who was involved heavily in the civil rights movement. And I'm not going to be able to remember the exact quote, but it was something like, as long as you believe you're white, there's nothing I can do for you. And it's, a, it's an inflammatory quote. But I think what Baldwin was getting at, and Kendi talks about in this book, and is sort of a matter of consensus among social scientists, is that race is a social thing. And that that belief in the social thing creates the very divisions that we then look at and think of as natural divisions. So Kendi talks about this in terms of um, racist ideas are actually produced in order to protect certain kinds of economic and social privileges. And so what, what Ta-Nehisi Coates is getting at there, I think, is that the very idea of whiteness is one of these ideas that was produced to protect certain forms of privilege because race is always, according to the definitions that they're using, always a hierarchical relationship. And as long as it's a hierarchical relationship and people believe that they are at the top of the hierarchy, that is not going to undermine that hierarchy. One thing that uh, sociologists have been trying to get across for a very, very long time and actually even Dr. King said this, but the vast majority of racial inequality isn't produced through hate. It's produced through sort of what scholars have recently called like a racial ignorance, but not ignorance in the sense of like being an ignorant person, 
but just sort of a blindness to how these things operate in society below the level of hate. I mean, like, if we think about things like the racial codes in words like good neighborhoods or good schools, right? And everyone wants their kids to be in a good neighborhood and a good school. But we know that that has historically and currently very real racial connotations, right? And so those are the kinds of things that sociologists ask people or even the the audit studies that I've talked about. If you do surveys of people, um, most people will say they're against discrimination in hiring, they're against discrimination in rental, and they're against discrimination in, you know, basically any area of life. But when given the choice, they still discriminate, right? And a lot of times people aren't even necessarily, it's not, I don't think that hate is, the, is a good description for why that happens. I think um, fear, ignorance, a genuine belief, a sort of subconscious belief in the superiority but it's not an like it's not the kind of vitriol, right? It's like I'm doing what's best for my business, or I'm doing what's best for my kids. I don't know that characterizing that as hate may be less effective in intervening. Yeah, thank you all. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Book Sandwiched In, a lunchtime book discussion series sponsored by Knox County Public Library in Knoxville, Tennessee. To find other podcasts, please visit our website at knoxlib.org.